Good afternoon, colleagues. We start today's business with First Minister's questions. And as usual, I'm going to ask the First Minister if she can update us on COVID. Uh, thanks, Presiding Officer. I will give a short up-to-date on today's statistics and on one other development. Uh, the total number of positive cases reported yesterday was 1,225. That's 4.7% of all tests reported. Uh, there are 1,125 people currently in hospital, 31 fewer than yesterday, and 90 people in intensive care, uh, which is six more than yesterday. In addition, I am sorry to report that in the past 24 hours, a further 51 deaths have been registered of patients who first tested positive in the previous 28 days. And again, I want to convey my condolences to everyone who has lost a loved one throughout this pandemic. Uh, we'll also shortly publish the latest estimate of the R number. We expect that it will show the R number in Scotland to be unchanged from last week, which means it is still slightly below one. That indicates that current restrictions are having an effect in curbing transmission of the virus, but we can't be complacent. We want infection rates to come down further and faster. Uh, that's why, with the exception of East Lothian moving from level three to level two, there was no change this week to the current levels of COVID restrictions. We have, however, confirmed uh, with other governments across the UK that there will be a temporary and very limited easing of restrictions for a five-day period over Christmas from 23rd December to 27th December inclusive. And that's the one uh, development I want to give a brief update on now. Uh, the Scottish Government published initial guidance um, about this Christmas period this morning. It's available for view on the Scottish Government website. Uh, the guidance presiding officer reiterates that the safest way for any of us to spend Christmas is with our own household, in our own home and our own local area. Uh, just because we are allowing people to meet up in a limited way does not of course mean that people have to do so and people should not feel under pressure to do so. This virus spreads when people come together so we are asking everyone to think carefully before using these flexibilities. Uh, and of course with the possibility of vaccines now so close uh, none of us will want to take unnecessary risks particularly with older or more vulnerable relatives so we should all consider whether there are alternative ways to have christmas contact with those we love this year for example by meeting outside on a family walk or by using technology However, we recognise the reality that at Christmas, some people will feel the need to meet up with others. Um, and so this guidance sets out advice on how to do that as safely as possible. Although it's important for me to stress that the advice, uh, even if fully implemented, will not completely eradicate risk. Uh, in summary, travel restrictions will be lifted across the UK between 23rd and 27th December, uh, but only to allow travel to join a bubble. Uh, there should be no more than three households in a bubble and in Scotland we are asking that this includes no more than one extended household. In general our advice is to keep any bubble as small as possible and to have no more uh, than eight people over the age of 12 uh, within it. Uh, people other than students who share flats uh, should try to stay in the same bubble as each other over Christmas, but if they do join different bubbles, our advice is to isolate from flatmates for around a week, uh, both before and after uh, the Christmas period. Uh, and members of a bubble should not change. You cannot meet with two households one day and then a different household the next. Um, as well as meeting in each other's homes, uh, these bubbles can meet outside or go to a place of worship together, but mustn't use hospitality together or go shopping together. And finally, we are advising that if you want to visit someone over Christmas in a care home or in a hospital, you should not form a bubble. Meeting other people indoors and then visiting someone in one of these settings increases the chances of transmitting the virus within a care home or hospital. We've given very careful thought to this guidance. It hasn't been easy to come to these conclusions. I know that some people will think the guidance is too strict. Others will think that any relaxation is uh, reckless. And I have to say, I understand both points of view. Uh, we are trying to balance as best we can two conflicting priorities. We know that some people will come to the view that the right thing for them at Christmas is spending time indoors with friends and loved ones who might otherwise be isolated and alone. So we want to make sure there is clear guidance about boundaries in place. But we also know the virus will not take a break over Christmas and indoor gatherings present a high risk of transmission. Having people from different generations in particular uh, can be risky, as we know younger people who have to go out to work and 
can often live in shared accommodation uh, are more likely to have been exposed to the virus. So I would urge everyone to consider carefully what arrangements they make at Christmas and think about the balance of risks involved. Um, I think for all of us, if we can find a different way of marking Christmas this year, the fact is that that will be a safer alternative, albeit a very tough one for everyone. Uh, for the moment, of course, and this is my final point, presiding officer, the best way in which all of us can try to make the Christmas period and what comes after that as safe as possible is getting infection rates down as low as possible as we can now. The best way of doing that is for all of us to stick to the rules currently in force, if you are in any doubt about the rules in your own area, visit the Scottish Government website and use the postcode checker. Um, and I'll finish with a very brief reminder of the key rules. Please don't visit each other's homes except for essential purposes. Abide by the travel restrictions that are now law. Uh, and finally, remember the facts advice. Uh, wear face coverings, avoid crowded places, clean your hands and hard surfaces, keep a two metre distance from people in other households and self-isolate and get tested immediately if you have any COVID symptoms. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. Thank you very much, First Minister. We're going to turn now to First Minister's questions. I would just encourage all members who wish to ask a supplementary to press their request to speak buttons. And I call on Ruth Davidson. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Last year, the First Minister promised this Parliament that she would cooperate fully with the Salmon Inquiry. She said the inquiries will be able to request whatever material they want, and I undertake today that we will provide whatever material they request. Yet, despite losing two votes in this Parliament, the Government is refusing to hand over the legal advice it received on the matter. Key Scottish Government officials who could shed light on the affair are being blocked from giving evidence, leading the SNP convener of the committee to say that its inquiries are being obstructed. The simple question is this. Why has the First Minister broken her promise? First Minister. Um, that is not the case. The Scottish Government is cooperating and will continue to cooperate with the inquiry. Nobody has been blocked from uh, giving evidence. Um, I, I myself have uh, recused myself from the decisions in relation to this for the very good reason, I think, that uh, it is partly my conduct that the inquiry is looking at. In terms of uh, legal advice, the Deputy First Minister set this out uh, very clearly to Parliament. Uh, of course, uh, and indeed, uh, this is a, uh, an issue in the context of, of this inquiry. Ministers have to abide with the terms of the Ministerial Code. Uh, the Ministerial Code says at uh, paragraph 2.38 that ministers must not divulge the contents of legal advice. Paragraph 2.40 uh, recognises that in exceptional circumstances, ministers can consider uh, that the balance of interest favours disclosure. Uh, ministers uh, and the Deputy First Minister is leading this consideration, is considering whether that test is met. But if ministers do consider that that test is met, they must then get the prior consent of law officers. As the Deputy First Minister has set out, that process is underway and he will update uh, Parliament when that process has concluded. Ruth Davison. The blunt fact is this. The only conceivable reason that she is breaking her promise is because she has something to hide. So let's try this a different way. I'll say what the legal advice contained and the First Minister can tell me if I'm wrong. The advice received by the Scottish Government's senior counsel warned that the Scottish Government's handling of the sexual harassment allegations were deeply flawed and that the judicial review would find in favour of Alex Salmond as it duly went on to do. And this advice was proffered to the Scottish Government long before they finally collapsed their own case running up hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of bills in the process and utterly failing the women who came forward. So tell the public, which part of that have I got wrong? First Minister. As Ruth Davidson uh, knows, uh, if I was to uh, go into the detail, I would stand here right now and I would breach the ministerial code. Uh, perhaps... Perhaps Ruth Davidson wants that to be the case, uh, but I'm not going to do that. The Ministerial Code, and I've just narrated the Ministerial Code and quoted directly from it, sets out a process that ministers have to go through should uh, legal advice uh, be divulged. And, and just to remind uh, the Chamber and uh, others watching, uh, the starting point in the Ministerial Code is that ministers must not divulge the contents of legal advice unless certain tests are fulfilled. And we are going through a process right now of consideration 
of those tests. Uh, that is the right uh, and proper way to do this. Once that process has concluded, uh, the Deputy First Minister will update uh, Parliament about the outcome of it. The cynical obfuscation that we have seen to the committee from the Deputy First Minister in last night's debate and from the First Minister here today only serves to show why this advice needs to be brought into the open. It's an argument that the First Minister once accepted herself, an argument that the whole Parliament has considered, has debated and has now voted on twice, and twice the Government has refused. So can I ask the First Minister, if the Parliament votes to release these documents a third time, is the First Minister going to again disrespect this chamber and the people who voted for us? First Minister. It is because of the votes in Parliament that ministers are now undergoing the process set down in the Ministerial Code. If we were to take a decision uh, that didn't go through that proper process, ministers would be in breach of the Ministerial Code. And I suspect we would have uh, members of the Parliament uh, raising the concern that we were acting outside of the Ministerial Code. The Ministerial Code the starting point in it is that ministers must not divulge the contents of legal advice. Uh, that's not uh, something that is unique in Scotland. There are uh, provisions like that uh, that govern uh, many different administrations. Um, the two-stage process is that ministers have to consider uh, whether the balance of public interest favours disclosure in a particular case, and then, should they decide that, they have to get, and again I'm quoting, the prior consent of law officers. That's the process that is underway, and when that process has concluded, uh, the Deputy First Minister will update Parliament. That's the right uh, way to do this, um, and that is the process that is underway. For my part, um, I've given my own uh, written evidence to the committee. I have not yet been invited to give evidence to the committee orally. When I am so invited to give evidence, I, of course, uh, as I am bound to do, will do that. Uh, I, the government, will cooperate fully with the inquiry, as we have already been doing. Mr Davison. Trading officer, the sheer hypocrisy of this is overwhelming. Nicholas Sturgeon and the SNP never tire of lecturing anyone who will listen about the will of Parliament and how it should be respected. Except, of course, when it doesn't suit their purpose. She says, she says that our government will cooperate with the committee. In fact, she obstructs it. She says all relevant documents will be made available, but she refuses to hand them over. She says repeatedly that the will of Parliament should be respected, but the only one disrespecting it is her. By ignoring two votes, where a majority of this chamber, the chamber we are sitting in right now, has demanded that legal advice to her government is shown to the country. During this affair, the First Minister has conveniently forgotten key information, dates, meetings and conversations. But hasn't she forgotten something far more fundamental too? First Minister. Um, the government is acting in line with the ministerial code and, uh, of course, Ruth Davidson will, on any occasion where uh, she or her colleagues believe uh, that uh, government or any minister within the government has acted out with the ministerial code, of course, get up um, and demand uh, inquiries and investigations and accountability for that. That is right and proper. Uh, the government is not ignoring the votes in Parliament. What the government is doing as a result of the votes in Parliament is going through the process that the ministerial code explicitly sets out before legal advice can be divulged. If we didn't go through that process, we would be breaching the ministerial code and I'm sure the position of Ruth Davidson would suddenly go full circle and the line of attack on the government would be something completely different. The Deputy First Minister has set out the process that the government is going through. Uh, I've set it out again. I have quoted uh, from the ministerial code. That process will be concluded and when it is concluded, the Deputy First Minister will advise Parliament of the outcome. Thank you. Question number two, Richard Leonard. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. The Crown Office is now leading Operation Copper, which is investigating care home deaths in Scotland. Does the First Minister believe that she and her ministers will need to be interviewed over the decisions that they made as part of this investigation? Has she made all evidence and correspondence without reservation available to this investigation? And does the First Minister consider that there was, at the very least, negligence in assuming that care homes could manage the risk of cross-infection. 
Uh, what evidence the Crown Office uh, seek in relation to any investigation that they are involved in um, and who the Crown Office uh, chooses to speak to in relation to any investigation they are involved in is a matter for the Crown Office and it would be completely wrong for me to uh, seek to comment on that in ways that would uh, be trying in some way to influence the outcome of this or any other investigation. Uh, on care homes, as we have uh, discussed uh, many times in the past, uh, the government acted uh, in a way that uh, was intended to protect the population and protect those in care homes as much as possible. I have never ever stood here um, and suggested that there were not things we got wrong in the face of a new virus uh, where uh, the challenges were significant. We have uh, sought to learn as we have gone along. We have changed policy. We have changed practice. Uh, but our intention and our determination all along have been to take the right decisions to keep the population uh, and particularly vulnerable groups within the population as safe as possible at all times. And that continues to be my daily focus as it is the daily focus of the entire government. Richard Leonard. I don't think it would prejudice the investigation to give a commitment that all evidence and all correspondence without reservation would be made available. Uh, but let me turn to... Let me turn to the substance of this, because back in April, when the scale of the tragedy in our care homes was becoming clearer, we were told that COVID-19 patients would require two negative tests before being transferred into care homes. Last week, when Neil Findlay highlighted examples of patients who tested positive for COVID being transferred to care homes now, the First Minister stated, there is no such policy and there will not be one. This week, we've been told by the Cabinet Secretary that people will only be admitted to care homes following a positive test if it was in their clinical interests and following a risk assessment. She also said that this was happening only in a very small number of exceptional cases. First Minister, how many cases is it? But I can't give that information because these are clinical decisions taken by clinicians. The policy is very clear. If somebody is in hospital uh, for a COVID-related reason, they require to have two negative tests before being discharged to a care home. If they are in hospital for uh, another reason, a known uh, COVID reason, they still require to have a negative test. Uh, but that is the policy in any situation. I have had lengthy discussions with the Chief Medical Officer and uh, clinicians about this. In any policy, uh, there are ethical reasons uh, and clinical reasons why there have to be exceptions in some circumstances. Perhaps um, if uh, Richard Leonard uh, doesn't want to take my word on that, let me just share the words of the President of the Royal College of Physicians uh, and Surgeons, uh, Professor Jackie Taylor. Uh, she says uh, this, as doctors we spend much of our time weighing up risks and benefits and trying to make the best decisions that we can. Policies and guidance are of fundamental importance in clinical practice, but none can cover all eventualities. Uh, she goes on to talk about the uh, fact that this is an invasive test and whether there are uh, exceptional circumstances uh, where that test would cause distress to a frail elderly person or where consent could not be uh, obtained, then it would ethically be wrong uh, to, to carry that out. These are uh, the kind of exceptional circumstances that have to be catered for in any policy in a clinical setting. It does not change the presumption and the policy, which it is, as I have already set out. Richard Leonard. Thank you. But if the Cabinet Secretary for Health uh, describes it as a very small number, I would have thought it would make sense for the government to monitor the number of COVID-positive and untested patients being discharged to care homes. Because during this pandemic, people were discharged from hospital into residential care homes untested. Some even now are being discharged into care homes having tested COVID-19 positive. There is a police investigation into care home deaths. There is the scandal of DNR notices, hospital treatment blocked, PPE shortages, and the denial of visiting rights. And once again, we are learning daily of serious and multiple outbreaks of COVID-19 in residential care homes. In the last month, 223 of our oldest and frailest citizens have lost their lives to COVID in care homes. So we welcome yesterday's announcement that at last the government is going to introduce testing for care home visitors. But in October, the government announced testing for all home care staff, and now they will have to wait until March. 
In May, some six months ago, the government announced routine and regular testing for all care home staff. Yet just last week, one in five were still not being tested. So what confidence can people have? Residents, families waiting to see their loved ones after months and months of separation, that this time you will move heaven on earth to honour that promise, that this time they will not be let down. There's a number of issues in there that, that, that all deserve to be uh, addressed individually um, and let me try to do so uh, briefly. Before we leave the issue of testing uh, those who are being discharged from hospital to care homes, the policy is very clear. But as with any policy in a clinical setting, it must cater for exceptional circumstances. To complete the quote that I... Uh, relied on earlier on from Professor uh, Taylor when she uh, refers to the policy but then says very clearly there are situations where this simply uh, may not be possible. Carrying out an invasive procedure might cause enormous distress and be difficult to conduct should this then meet, uh, mean that a patient is denied return to what is essentially their home. The other point that flows from that is that in a, a care home situation, a 14-day period of isolation must be completed in all circumstances where there is a discharge, whether or not a person has had a COVID test and whether the result is negative or not. So testing is part of the protections in place. It is not the only part of the protections in place. In terms of testing more broadly, care home workers are tested weekly. Not all care home workers will be at work every week um, and uh, care home workers like everybody else have to consent to being tested uh, so there are uh, there is a, a system of regular routine care home testing uh, care home worker testing in place um, and that is working very well in order to try to speed up that process we are also transferring uh, the processing of the testing from the lighthouse laboratory network into the nhs scotland network and that is well underway uh, we are now moving to go beyond that uh, to test uh, designated visitors to care homes and the Health Secretary set out that that will begin um, in uh, the next month uh, before Christmas and over the Christmas period those who don't have access to lateral flow testing uh, designated visitors will be offered access to PCR testing in the weeks over the Christmas period uh, and of course we are uh, moving also to test regularly using uh, lateral flow technology uh, care at home workers uh, so as the technology develops as we are able to introduce that new technology Technology. One of the constraints on the position with lateral flow testing right now is that it is not yet MHRA licensed for unsupervised use, which we hope will change soon. But as this new technology comes, uh, becomes available, we are rolling it out and using testing more and more as part of our overall response to COVID. Thank you. Question number three from Patrick Harvey, who joins us remotely. Mr Harvey. Thank you, Presiding Officer. I recognise that there were difficult judgments to make about relaxing the COVID rules over the holidays, especially after public expectations had been built up. But within a day of announcing the looser rules, the First Minister was appealing to the public not to use them. It's a confusing message. And let's look at what the public health experts are saying. Professor Andrew Hayward, a member of SAGE, has said it's likely to lead to a third wave of infection with hospitals being overrun and more unnecessary deaths. Professor Debbie Schroeder said we're going to pay for the Christmas holidays with probably a January national lockdown. This morning at Parliament's COVID committee, the National Clinical Director confirmed that no risk assessment has been made of the impact this relaxation will have. This seems deeply irresponsible. So can the First Minister confirm that this is the case? If so, how will the government ensure that our NHS is prepared for the third wave that the new rules risk creating. First Minister. Um, I recognise this is a, a really complex situation and like so many of the decisions that have had to be taken in relation to COVID over these past few months, this is one that we have agonised over. Um, and it's very difficult to uh, be absolutely certain what the right uh, or otherwise thing to do is. Uh, there is a recognition of reality here that Christmas, because of the particular circumstances and nature of that time of the year, the fact that at that time of the year people worry more about leaving loved ones alone, that some people may feel that they simply cannot stay within the rules as they are right now. So instead of just allowing that to happen uh, naturally in a haphazard way, 
we decided that it was better to try to put some guidance and some boundaries around that, um, but to make very clear to people that that carries risks. And therefore, the default advice and the default position should be, if you can uh, get through this Christmas without interacting physically, uh, and uh, particularly indoors uh, with members of other households. So yet yeah, these decisions, it would be much easier for everybody if these uh, decisions were uh, not complicated and, and clear cut in one direction or, or the other. We try to communicate quite difficult, nuanced messages as carefully as possible. Um, public health experts, of course, will be concerned about any situation where people are coming together, as I am. Um, I can't speak for, uh, I wouldn't try to speak for the public health experts. Divi Schrider is obviously a, an advisor to uh, the Scottish Government. I've had some interaction uh, with her in the last couple of days. I am not trying to speak for her, but I, I think she would probably, in an overall sense, welcome the balance of the, the Scottish Government's uh, messaging around this. In terms of risk assessment, we've, uh, we've not modelled uh, this particular uh, arrangement. Uh, we are looking at if and how it is possible to do that. There are difficulties in trying to model uh, an arrangement, particularly where you're trying to persuade people only to use uh, flexibilities where necessary. But, you know, the risk, if, if you want me to talk about risk, I'm being very open with people that this does carry risks, which is why uh, where people can get through Christmas without mixing with others, that is my advice to them. Where they feel they need to do it, they should pay close attention to the advice and try to keep well within that advice. And I hope that uh, every member of the chamber, whatever their views and all of these things are, will, will help us in trying to communicate that difficult, complex, I accept, but really important message to the public over the next few weeks. Patrick Harvey. I do think many people will wonder why, with vaccines perhaps just around the corner, we're choosing to run this risk now. But one factor in the resurgence of COVID uh, after the summer was the failure of the government to plan properly for students to arrive on university campuses. Yet it appears that the government still hasn't prepared a plan for the potential return of students to campus in January. I welcome the fact that students will be tested as they head home, but there are no details yet about testing again prior to their return to university. As we've heard, it looks increasingly likely that cases will be rising again in January and adding thousands of students in university halls into that mix would be a recipe for disaster. So can the First Minister confirm exactly what the testing arrangements will be for students in January when they return, whether she agrees with NUS Scotland that online learning should be the default where possible after Christmas, and if she will ensure that those who do have to self-isolate receive wraparound support so that we aren't faced with the repeat of the disaster we witnessed in September. First Minister. Isolation and wraparound support, universities have uh, a responsibility to ensure that the welfare needs of students in that situation are catered for. And um, I think universities generally have put in place good arrangements for that, and we continue to liaise uh, with them. In terms of the overall uh, arrangements for students, uh, the priority in the last uh, few weeks has been on arrangements to enable students, should they choose to do so, to return home for the festive period. The, testing programme, uh, students will be offered uh, two lateral flow tests before uh, they return home and given uh, guidance and advice about what to do to uh, make that as safe as possible. That testing programme will get underway next week. Uh, we are currently uh, considering and uh, we will we'll finalise shortly and announce shortly the arrangements for uh, return after uh, the festive period for the, the new term. And we are looking at testing in that uh, regard, uh, but also considering issues about uh, whether uh, we would have a delayed or a staggered return, whether there would be a period of, of blending or uh, remote learning before students came back as normal. These things are uh, under uh, active consideration right now and I hope we'll be able to confirm our conclusions on these uh, matters very soon. Question number four, Willie Rennie. I, I still didn't hear the answer to Richard Leonard why it's taking so long to get families in to see their loved ones in care homes. Uh, almost every family has a story about being denied access. The testing announced yesterday is still weeks away and it's only for a handful of homes in just some council areas. Just listen to the testimonies. It has been the worst eight months of my life. My mum was a very social person prior to lockdown. Now she looks so sad. I have not seen my husband for eight months. 
And I'm sorry to read this one out, but we have to fully understand the agony that some people are going through. Every conversation, mum tells me how she wants to die. We know this can be done safely, and I know the First Minister cares, but the families just want action. Time is running out. So why do families have to wait for yet more weeks before they can have the slender prospect of seeing their loved ones? First Minister. Um, everybody who, everybody uh, has had a torrid eight months, um, and that is particularly true of people who have loved ones in care homes. And uh, Willie Rennie's right to read out these comments. I read, I, I get emailed with comments uh, like that regularly. I make a point of reading as many as I can. And if it's hard uh, to listen to these kinds of comments, as I know it is for all of us, uh, then perhaps that gives an insight into how hard it is to feel that it is your decisions that are uh, influencing uh, the, the situation. So I, uh, you know, it's, it's trite in some ways to say this, and I don't mean it to sound trite. I, I take this as seriously as it's possible to take anything. And uh, these decisions weigh heavily on me, and the choices we have to make right now are, are difficult, and uh, none of us find them easy. We are trying to navigate our way as carefully and as safely through a really difficult and, for many people, dangerous situation. Um, the uh, inability of people to visit uh, loved ones in care homes normally is to try to stop the virus getting into and transmitting in care homes. And uh, those who rightly, and you know, I, I am not seeking to criticise in any way here, those who rightly say, can't we speed up getting visiting back to normal in care homes, are also often the same people who rightly, and this is not a criticism either, uh, raise issues about the transmission of, of COVID in care homes. Um, so these are not easy decisions. And all I would ask people to understand is if we thought it was possible to go quicker on these things, we would, because nobody wants uh, loved ones to be in this situation. On testing, we have to take care to get the situation right. The lateral flow testing um, has not been available for uh, a long period of time, uh, and there are still issues about the constraints on the use of that, but we have now set out a very clear programme, which we will look on an ongoing basis. The Health Secretary and I have been discussing this this morning about how we can speed up uh, the rollout of lateral flow testing so that that becomes much more quickly a very routine part of uh, somebody visiting care homes. Uh, but while the, the use of that testing is being uh, rolled out in the way the Health Secretary set out yesterday, particularly over the Christmas period, because that will not be available for everybody, uh, she announced plans to to make PCR testing available in the week, uh, the three week over the, the festive period while that work uh, continues. Uh, so we will continue uh, to, to try to speed this up as much as possible, but consistent with the safe use of uh, the rollout of technology that people working in care homes are not yet familiar with, but also in the interest of trying to continue to keep those in care homes as safe as possible. Really? Uh, we do need to change on care homes. It's been promised repeatedly for far too long, so it's got to change, and it's got to change soon. I'm also frustrated about how slow this government has been on the expansion of testing. In the spring, thousands of new residents were not tested before admission to care homes. Care home staff were not tested either at that time. Students were not tested before they arrived back on campus after the summer. And it's weeks yet, as we've just discussed before, families will be tested before they can get access to loved ones in care homes. This is just not good enough. The government's reluctance to embrace testing at the beginning has been felt now. The effects of it has been felt now. Thousands of students in Northumberland were tested. Liverpool offered testing for everyone. Slovakia tested three million people. And as a result, thousands of people were self-isolating, protecting the lives of others. And this government's response? 12,000 people in a small town in Renfrewshire. Just when is the government going to catch up on testing? First Minister. Look, it's, it's easy to always stand and say we should be doing things quicker. If I was in opposition, no doubt I'd be doing it um, as well. But, you know, Willie Rennie used the word reluctance. Um, why would I be reluctant to do things that could make a difference in the battle against COVID? 
Uh, but often these things are more complex than they appear. We have to roll technology out safely, make sure people are using it properly, that they're trained and supported to use it, and, and try to make sure that the use of testing, important though it is, uh, is part of a bigger approach and doesn't inadvertently perhaps undermine some of the other important messages that we're trying to get across. And that work is complex. That work uh, does unfortunately take time. I uh, frequently am frustrated that things can't uh, go more quickly. But, you know, Willie Rennie, I think, is underplaying uh, some of the work that is being done um, around testing. Next week, we will start a testing programme for all students. Uh, we will continue to look at the role of testing in the student population. You know, he can dismiss a, a, a pilot project for mass population testing in Johnson. It's really important because it's one of the highest prevalence areas in the country right now. And that will allow us to learn a lot about the use of testing in that way to get stubbornly high uh, prevalence rates down. But the Health Secretary talked yesterday about the other work we're doing with all 11 local authorities in Level 4 and the five health boards that are involved in these areas uh, to roll out a mix of PCR and lateral flow testing across a range of different geographies. We've been looking carefully at Liverpool. The, the Liverpool pilot's got a lot of hard lessons, particularly about how you make sure you get a, a good uptake of testing offered like that. So, you know, we'll continue to do this work. We are not uh, reluctant to do anything that will help here, but we are uh, keen to get it right and do it properly because there are big things, uh, not least human health and life, that are at stake here. And that's why we take these decisions as seriously as we do. Thank you. Question number five, Alistair Allen. To ask the First Minister uh, whether she will provide an update on the launch of the Scottish National Investment Bank. First Minister. Uh, the bank opened for business on Monday and, uh, of course, uh, sees the delivery of a key programme for government uh, commitment. The government will capitalise the bank with an initial £2 billion over 10 years. It's the first mission-oriented bank in the UK and will address key societal challenges, uh, help to shape future markets, uh, I hope spark innovation, and deliver a range of environmental, social and economic returns. Its primary mission, uh, rightly so, will be to support our transition to a net zero economy. Um, I believe it is perhaps the most significant economic development in the lifetime of this parliament, and I think generations to come will look back and understand its importance. I thank the First Minister for her response and for her reference uh, to decarbonising the economy. As we emerge from the pandemic, can the First Minister advise what the Scottish National Investment Bank will be doing to help Scotland meet its ambitious climate change targets? First Minister. Well, the bank's primary mission will support uh, the transition to a net zero economy uh, in response to the climate emergency. Um, and as I just said, it's open for business uh, this week, so it will increasingly become part of our green recovery from COVID as well, uh, providing finances uh, for businesses and projects that are working towards the achievement of net zero emissions. Uh, the bank confirmed its first investment earlier this week, uh, an investment to a company, M Squared, uh, to further advance its research and development, uh, which is key to upscaling the pioneering work it's doing in quantum uh, innovation uh, alongside the technologies it uses and develops to help monitor and tackle climate change. So the climate uh, and the climate emergency was very much at the heart of that first investment. And I think that is a theme we will see strongly develop. Thank you. Question number six, Michelle Ballantyne, who joins us remotely. Thank you, presiding officer. To ask the first minister why crimes involving offensive weapons continue to be on the rise and what action the Scottish Government is taking to curb this activity. First Minister. While we've seen increases in these types of crime in the last few years, the longer term trend is positive. Over the past decade, the number of crimes recorded for handling an offensive weapon and the number of emergency hospital admissions due to assault with a sharp object have more than halved. Uh, over the past decade, we've invested over £20 million in violence prevention programmes. That includes funding Scotland's Violence Reduction Unit, Medics Against Violence and No Knives, Better Lives. Alongside enforcement and prosecution options, we will also continue to work with partners to deliver targeted violence prevention programmes in local areas uh, where these crimes occur. Michelle Ballantyne. I thank the First Minister for that answer. And we have seen a downturn in the number of crimes and no doubt partly brought on by the pandemic that we're experiencing. But whilst most local authorities are seeing a decrease in crime, Midlothian was rare in seeing a 5% increase 
even discounting crimes um, that were counted under the new coronavirus legislation. Glasgow, in comparison, has seen a 15% decrease in crime. So at the start of the year, Midlothian Council very nearly lost its police community action teams, you know, one that have been doing fantastic work, and that was because of a lack of funding. So having seen these latest figures, will the First Minister commit to actually making sure that there is ring funds funding for the Midlothian CAT to ensure that these numbers do not continue to rise? And can she explain why in areas such as Midlothian and Murray, we are still seeing significant increases in this crime? First Minister. Um, I'm happy to uh, have the particular local issues uh, looked into. I don't know what the particular circumstances would be um, in these areas, although often there can be fluctuations area to area, and sometimes there may be, not that they are unimportant because of this, uh, relatively small numbers involved that uh, result in uh, percentage increases. I, I will not uh, give a commitment in the way that uh, the member asked, because it's, of course, an operational matter for the Chief Constable to decide uh, where resources are best targeted in order to uh, both prevent and investigate crime. And I think it is right and proper that, that these are decisions uh, for the Chief Constable to take. Uh, the final point I would make in a national context, and as with all uh, national figures, of course, there will be local variations within them. But it's not true to say that uh, crime is down because of the pandemic. What we see recorded crime in Scotland at one of the lowest levels since 1974. It's down 41% since 2006. Seven. So the long-term trend in crime in Scotland is firmly downwards. I don't think that should give anybody uh, any grounds for complacency. And I know uh, the Chief Constable continues to uh, take all of these matters uh, seriously and make sure uh, take decisions that make sure resources are being targeted where they are most required. Question seven, James Kelly. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister what action has been taken to address concerns that COVID-19 rates are higher in areas of greater poverty and deprivation. First Minister. Well, obviously, I'm concerned about the overall impact of COVID, but also about the uh, disproportionate effect it is having on certain groups in the population. Um, in terms of understanding why that is the case, there are many experts and researchers doing work to try to get uh, a deeper understanding of the impact uh, of COVID. We know already uh, that some of the issues behind uh, greater levels, in particular ethnic communities and in areas of poverty and deprivation, uh, can be, uh, amongst other things, no doubt, due, uh, due to uh, housing conditions and, and more people living in uh, smaller accommodation. Uh, more generally, we have uh, tried to put equality and social justice at the heart of our response to COVID. Uh, we have provided uh, significant financial support, uh, including a communities package available uh, to help those most in need. Uh, we've uh, since increased the initial funding considerably, um, particularly given additional funding to local authorities in level four. Um, and of course, we have taken uh, decisions such as uh, the extension of free school meal provision uh, right through uh, to the Easter holidays next year. Uh, so we'll continue both to try to understand the reasons for the disproportionate impact of COVID and do everything we can to address the needs of those who are impacted in that way. James Kelly. Yesterday's daily record devoted substantial coverage to the scandal of poverty in Scotland, particularly highlighting the fact that a quarter of kids uh, will grow up hungry. In addition to that, a recent survey uh, found that nearly half of people uh, basically ran out of money before they got to the next payday. It's a really desperate situation for many people in the country to be living in. In addition to that, in Glasgow City, where there are a high proportion of COVID hotspots, it also contains 24.8% of the areas of greatest deprivation in the country. So there's a clear link between po poverty and COVID rates. Can I therefore ask the, the First Minister if, in terms of any COVID recovery plan, Will the government commit to ensuring that there will be specific packages highlighted at these areas of poverty and deprivation to ensure that these communities are not left behind? Minister. Uh, we have uh, sought to do that uh, since the start of the pandemic and, uh, as I said in my initial answer, made significant additional funding uh, available to help specifically with the community impact, recognising 
uh, the areas uh, of pre-existing poverty and deprivation uh, will be particularly uh, hard hit. Uh, we uh, have also made additional money available to local authorities uh, to uh, help with financial insecurity over the winter uh, and we will be thinking uh, and are thinking right now and we will uh, make uh, more plans known in the weeks to come about how we particularly help uh, those over the winter period and beyond as we start to recover from COVID. Um, in terms of poverty uh, more generally um, and child poverty in particular, uh, this government is determined uh, to eradicate child poverty and we are taking uh, very significant steps to help us do that. We are the only part of the UK introducing uh, the new child payment uh, which is now open for applications for the first phase of that uh, with first payments coming early next year. Uh, that is the, the game changer that many poverty uh, campaigners have described uh, and as a signal of our determination uh, to do everything we can within the powers that we have uh, to tackle poverty and child poverty in particular and I'm sure we'll have uh, more to say about that in the weeks to come. Of course there was a missed opportunity yesterday on the part of the Chancellor uh, who could have made the uplift to universal credit uh, that was introduced for Covid, rightly so, could have chosen to make that permanent and didn't do it um, and I hope this whole Parliament will unite and call on him to rethink that uh, and put that wrong right. Move on to supplementaries. Maureen Watt, be followed by Maurice Corrie. Maureen Watt. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. The First Minister will be aware of the hugely worrying outbreak of COVID-linked co cases to the Keypat Macintosh Donald uh, factory or plant in my constituency. 78 cases have been detected, and this is another example of an outbreak in a food processing plant. Can the First Minister say whether we have better understanding of now of why these outbreaks are occurring and what measures can be taken to prevent them? First Minister. Um, food processing plants we know and we've known um, right throughout this pandemic, even before we had experience of this in Scotland, uh, pose some particular risks. The reasons for that are varied, uh, but they include uh, things like very low temperatures um, in some of, of these plants uh, and also some of the other uh, working conditions. Uh, so as that understanding develops, uh, so too has the response of public health experts. Uh, and there is a lot of work done to make sure that the right precautions are taken in uh, food processing plants. But where there are cases, uh, they are identified quickly and the right steps are taken, including testing of uh, wider workforces to try to, to minimise spread within uh, workplaces, but also, uh, most importantly, to try to minimise uh, the risk of an outbreak in somewhere like Keepak uh, seeding into wider community transmission. So that's uh, an important focus, and I know in Grampian right now, a very important focus um, of the, the public health teams there. Uh, one perhaps more positive thing to say about this, not taken away from the seriousness of the situation, as we have seen, and uh, I have uh, commented on this in the past couple of weeks in the Chamber, uh, we have seen a rise in cases in Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire. Um, but one of the things that we can take some assurance from um, is that much of that can be attributed to outbreaks like this rather than being indicative of more widespread increases in community transmission. We continue to monitor that carefully, uh, but it is one of the reasons right now where notwithstanding these increases, we have uh, not felt it necessary to move Aberdeen or Aberdeenshire up a level. Maurice Corridge, before by Jackie Bailey. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. I have been contacted yet again by pharmacies in the Helensburgh and Lomond area in my region who are still unable to access supplies of flu vaccine despite assurances from the Scottish Government that they will get supplies. Will the First Minister agree with me that this is totally unacceptable and they therefore ensure that adequate supplies of flu vaccine are made available to pharmacies in my West Scotland region? First Minister. I'm happy to look into that situation. I'm uh, not uh, aware right now of the reasons uh, for that. Uh, what I can say is the flu vaccination programme is progressing well. Significant numbers of people uh, are now vaccinated and that will continue uh, over the remainder of this year and into next year. We procure uh, through the UK-wide uh, procurement system. We have adequate supplies, uh, but we know, and this is a good thing, that uh, uptake in some groups has been higher than normal, which of course we're encouraging. But in terms of the particular issue with pharmacies in uh, the members' constituency. I will look into that, uh, and either I or the Health Secretary will reply to them as soon as possible. Jackie Bailey to be followed by June McAlpine. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Western Berkshire was raised to Tier 4 last Friday, despite a 35% decrease in the number of positive cases in the preceding. 
fact, in the week before the 20th of November, the drop was as significant as 25%, much higher than the drop across Scotland, which was 9% at the time. Now, I absolutely understand it's difficult to get the balance right, um, but this is having a significant impact on the economic and mental well-being of my local constituents. So can I ask the First Minister, um, will she review the position in Western Berkshire? Because local people are unclear why they are in Tier 4, when actually there are local authority areas with a higher number of positive cases that are currently in Tier 3. First Minister. Um, these are perfectly legitimate questions, and as I've tried uh, and will continue to try to the, the best of my ability to explain, is that when we make these decisions, we take account of the indicators that we set out publicly, which are about case numbers, test positivity, pressure on hospital and ICU services. But we also have to make judgments about the, the direction of travel, uh, but also whether uh, the, the position in a particular area is coming down fast enough uh, and whether it remains significantly above the national average. And, and it was that uh, balance of factors and uh, balance of judgment that led to uh, the area uh, that Jackie Bailey's constituency is in being put into level four. Um, we have said that the level four restrictions will end on, the de on December the 11th, and that remains the case. What we will be doing between now and then is looking at the particular circumstances in Western Bartonshire. Uh, my apologies, I don't have Western Dunbartonshire's uh, up-to-date figures in front of me right now. I will get the most up-to-date ones later today. Um, but I think they, uh, certainly until very recently, were still uh, above the national average. But we will look at direction of travel as we make the decisions about what level uh, each area goes into after the 11th of December. And that will be a, a process of consideration, not just for Western Bartonshire, but for uh, all of these 11 council areas that is underway over the next uh, couple of weeks. Thank you. Joe McAlpine to be followed by Alexander Stewart. Thank you. We learned yesterday that care workers of learning disabled people will not be tested until next year, perhaps not into the spring in some cases, even in regulated accommodations similar to care homes, whereas groups like students and family visitors will be tested in December. The Scottish Government's guidance for testing says that vulnerable groups will be prioritised, and we know from Public Health England recent data that learning disabled people's deaths from COVID are six times higher than general population, rising to 30 times higher in younger groups. And of course, it's more difficult for this group to take the additional measures to protect themselves, such as social distancing and uh, uh, face mask wearing. So therefore, can the First Minister explain the clinical reasons why the protection of this vulnerable group doesn't appear to be a priority? in the testing rollout. Thank you. First Minister. It, it's not that it's not a priority. There are different practical challenges with different groups that we are expanding testing to, and they have to be properly uh, considered and thought through. The, the rollout to this group begins actually in, in January, and then that will be uh, completed as quickly as it's possible. These practical challenges uh, look at uh, the settings in which people are in uh, who will be administering tests, um, and uh, obviously the, the availability of tests. So we will continue to do that as quickly as possible, and the Health Secretary will keep the Chamber updated as appropriate. Alexander Stewart, to be followed by Daniel Johnson. Thank you, Presiding Officer. First Minister, the National Farmers Union of Scotland has raised serious concerns regarding the issue of fly tipping in rural communities during the pandemic, not just in my region, but right across the length and breadth of the country. They have received widespread reports of dumping of commercial, human and hazardous materials, which require specialist treatment to be removed. One of the major areas of concern is that there seems to be a fragmented approach across local authorities with no universal mechanism for re recording and reporting of fly tipping. Therefore, will the First Minister join with me and the NFUS calling for the creation of a national database for fly tipping as a matter of urgency? First Minister. Uh, we will give that consideration as we will any uh, reasonable suggestions that are made by uh, organisations like uh, the NFUS. Um, fly tipping is a problem. Uh, there is a, a range of work that the Scottish Government has done and continues to do to try to combat uh, fly tipping. I'll ask the Environment Secretary to write to the member to recap on that work and also to give some uh, further uh, feedback on uh, particular consideration of the, the policy suggestion that has been uh, made. Um, I know the NFUS, like others, are concerned uh, about 
about fly tipping. I think organisations like the NFUS are very concerned right now, perhaps even more concerned about Brexit uh, and the looming end of the transition period. So I'll consider uh, that proposal. I hope the Conservatives will continue to uh, press their government in uh, the UK uh, to make sure that we don't leave uh, our farmers, uh, our fishermen and others at the mercy of a no-deal Brexit or, or a flimsy deal Brexit at the end of this year. Daniel Johnson to be followed by Annabel Ewing. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, I received an email from a constituent studying at Edinburgh University. Earlier this week, they spent seven hours trying to access the online system for booking the COVID test they require to return home safely this Christmas. When they did manage to log on, the only dates available for the two required tests were 24 hours apart, well short of the five days that are required. So, uh, the First Minister will surely agree with me that given the issues at the start of term, we can ill afford issues such as this at the end of term. So does the First Minister have confidence in the system in place for student testing? And will she urgently investigate the issues uh, regarding the booking systems and whether all students have been able to get the tests with a sufficient gap between those two tests? First Minister. Um, I would be grateful if Daniel Johnson could send me the email from his constituent because I'm, I'm not entirely clear whether he's talking about the, the portal system, the UK-wide booking system, which is is used for PCR testing um, and works well. Obviously, there will be some occasions where an individual finds that it takes time to get uh, a test, particularly if they're ordering a home test. That's a, a system overall that is governed by uh, the UK uh, government, and we work constructively on that. Um, if I'm wrong about that, and it is a particular issue with access to the university lateral flow testing, then I'm happy to look into that. But I would like to understand which system it is that's been talked about so that I can take that up and come back with a, a full and proper response. Thank you. Annabel Ewing to be followed by Annie Wells. Annabel Ewing. Thank you, Presiding Officer. On the important issue of BIFAB, aside from the failure of the majority shareholder, DF Driver, to step up to the plate with a financial guarantee. A key issue, of course, has been the lack of conditionality in the UK government-controlled contracts for difference. Can the First Minister confirm that a key priority in the joint working group to be set up will be to remove this barrier that the UK government has inflicted on the Scottish domestic supply chain? First Minister. Uh, Annabelle Ewing raises a very important point. Can I, before I address that point, can I just uh, make very clear today that just as this government has done uh, for the past few years, we will continue to do everything we possibly can to support BIFAB uh, operating within the legal constraints that we operate uh, within. Um, in terms of the uh, particular point that Annabelle Ewing raises, that it's an important one, and, and anybody who cares about places like BIFAB uh, should uh, recognise the importance of this point. We've called, and people will have heard me do it in the Chamber many times before, we've called on the UK Government for some time to make greater use of supply chain plans as part of the contract for difference process, and also to remove the loop Whole so that we can ensure greater use of domestic renewable energy supply chains. Uh, so we welcome the announcement that the UK government will shortly consult on the supply chain plan and we hope that shift will allow our domestic supply chain to benefit more from future developments around our natural energy resources. Uh, both governments are working to finalise and agree the terms of reference of the working group, uh, but I hope that it can make a significant contribution to strengthening renewables in Scotland. Annie Wells to be followed by Colin Smith. Thank you. Presiding officer, last year, four in ten council planning decisions that were appealed to SNP ministers were overturned. That means hundreds of developments going ahead against the wishes of democratically elected local representatives. Will the First Minister support Scottish Conservative proposals to restore local decision making and stop central government in Edinburgh undermining local communities? First Minister. Uh, I'd be really cautious about giving a commitment to back the Tories on planning uh, policy, to be uh, perfectly honest. Um, on the issue of... Uh, th there is a, a statutory process for planning permissions. There is a... Uh, I don't have the figures in front of me today, but there's a relatively uh, small uh, percentage of uh, planning applications that come to Scottish ministers, and I think of that, a relatively small percentage uh, result in a different decision from the one originally taken. But there's a very rigorous uh, process that has to be gone through. Uh, that includes uh, real you know, independence of the, the approach ministers take, and I think that is right and proper. What I uh, do know... Uh, 
that from, uh, from, and I know this from a constituency uh, perspective as well as uh, from the perspective of a minister, is that on uh, most planning applications, uh, whatever the outcome, some people will think it is the wrong uh, decision and some people will think it is the right decision. And that's why it's really important that there is the rigorous process in place that we have in place right now. Colin Smith to be followed by Shona Robertson. Thank you, President Officer. I received an email from a family who live in East Ayrshire on the boundary with neighbouring South Ayrshire. Although the kids can travel each day to the nearest school in South Ayrshire, they can no longer take part in their twice-weekly organised outdoor activity with the same kids from the school because that activity takes place in South Ayrshire half a mile from the family home. That's despite the fact that both East and South Ayrshire are at the same level of restriction and despite the fact even under those restrictions, organised outdoor activity is rightly allowed. Now, my constituents ask me why their kids can take part in organised outdoor activity but are prevented from doing so because the government's travel restrictions regulations would make it a criminal offence for them to actually travel to take part in that sport because it is not classed as a reasonable excuse for travel. Now, I don't know the answer to that, First Minister. Can you help me tell my constituents what the answer is? First Minister. Yes, I can. Uh, two reasons, uh, and they are interrelated and interconnected. Uh, firstly, in a global pandemic, there is only so much human interaction we can enable to happen without the virus running out of control. So we have to limit overall human interaction and make choices about the things that can go ahead and the things that can't go ahead. And I think most people would recognise that having young people in school is a priority. It doesn't mean other things young people want to do are not important, but we cannot do everything in a pandemic uh, without allowing the virus to run out of control. Uh, that's the first point. Related to that is the second point, that when we have a situation uh, of trying to control the virus, trying to make sure that we uh, limit its spread from one part of the country to another, we have to try to stop people travelling from one part of a country uh, to another. Uh, these are unpalatable choices, but they are essential and necessary choices. And I have to say, I have tried really hard to understand Scottish Labour's position on travel restrictions, and I just cannot do it. Their counterparts in Wales know what the sensible position is right now. There have been travel restrictions internally in Wales at a much earlier stage in the pandemic than was the case in uh, Scotland. Um, and of course, there are still travel restrictions in terms of people going in and out of Wales. I know this is hard for constituents, the length and breadth of the country, but so too is having a loved one with COVID, watching a loved one in hospital uh, with COVID, watching perhaps a loved one die with COVID. These are difficult things that we're all having to do right now and they are all with the intention of keeping this dangerous virus under control. Shuna Robertson to be followed by Andy Whiteman. Does the First Minister agree that the Westminster Government's announcement yesterday to freeze public sector pay for so many on the front line, scrap the proposed increase in the national minimum wage and the failure to extend the £20 uplift to universal credit and working tax credit beyond next year will leave many Scottish families struggling to feed and clothe their children? First Minister. Uh, yes, I do. Um, I know how difficult uh, it is for the UK government to balance the financial challenges and fiscal challenges right now, as it is for all governments. I welcome many of the decisions the Chancellor has taken uh, during COVID and have been you know, very open about that. But as we come out, hopefully, of this pandemic and start to rebuild, we cannot have uh, the natural Tory instinct of allowing the burden of that financially to fall on those who can least afford it. And uh, I think many aspects of the Chancellor's statement yesterday seemed to herald a new age of austerity for public sector workers, for low-income people and for those already living in poverty. And this Parliament has to stand up firmly against that and on the side of those who need us most. Andy Whiteman, followed by Liam MacArthur. Thank you, President. I have a constituent who uh, on Wednesday next week will be uh, ejected by sheriff officers from her home, her and her disabled son. The council's putting in place suitable facilities in a new home, but COVID has delayed matters. Now, I don't expect the First Minister to respond to this case, but I would like to know um, that if this was in England, it would be unlawful under regulations made on the 13th of November, where no officer of a court can evict a person from their home between the 17th of November and the 11th of January. Will she introduce similar regulations for Scotland? First Minister. Um, I'm happy to look into that. We have uh, protections in place. Uh, there are legal protections in place. We've taken a, a number of other steps to try to provide uh, help for people who are struggling to pay rent uh, during this pandemic. Um, I know there has been updated guidance 
uh, already issued uh, to members of the uh, Sheriff Officers uh, Association um, advising uh, that evictions are not carried out uh, where they're in uh, level three or level uh, four areas. But if there is more that we can reasonably do, I, as Andy Whiteman knows, because we've discussed this before, I am happy to look at that and I will look at the particular uh, issue in more detail. Lee MacArthur to be followed by Sandra White. Uh, thanks, President Officer. The uh, First Minister will be aware that arrangements for people uh, to be with family at Christmas take account of the additional travel time that may be required for those needing to get to and from Northern Ireland. She'll also know uh, that no such arrangements have been put in place for our island communities, even though travel times are often longer and options more limited than they are in relation to Northern Ireland. Does the First Minister accept that this risks creating serious bottlenecks on ferries and flights over the Christmas period, does she further accept that it means that islanders could have less time to spend with family members? And will she therefore urgently review the proposed rules to ensure that the needs of our island communities are properly taken into account? Um, I know, because I, I had a discussion with colleagues this morning about this, um, that we, if we haven't done it already, are going to uh, provide a, a slight update to the guidance published this morning to take uh, account and refer to the, the timing of overnight ferries uh, from uh, Shetland uh, over that, that period uh, to make sure that that is catered for. Uh, and we will look uh, as reasonably as we can at any other exceptional circumstances. There is, of course, a general exemption in terms of exceptional circumstances for people uh, who are are travelling, but we will try to look as favourably as we can at all of these uh, particular circumstances. But, but generally, I don't want people to lose sight of the overall default advice. People should think very carefully about travelling over Christmas and about coming together with other households. And perhaps with our islands, uh, where prevalence is very low, uh, and we hope uh, to see even more normality introduced to our islands uh, over the next uh, period, be particularly careful about taking the virus to the islands over the festive period. So I recognise these difficulties. We'll try to be as uh, flexible as we can, but let's not lose sight of that overall public health advice. And Sandra White. Thank you very much, Presiding Officer. Uh, First Minister, three in my constituency uh, are not renewing your contract with Capita at Sky Park. Also, my constituency, this is resulting in 500 job losses over the next couple of months. Can I therefore ask the First Minister whether the Scottish Government will commit to exploring every avenue uh, to save jobs at Sky Park and give assurances to provide substantial and tangible uh, support to employees affected by this decision and their job losses? First Minister. Well, I was obviously concerned to learn that Capita has entered into consultation with its customer service staff um, that support the three UK contract. I know this will be a worrying time for those workers, um, and that is particularly so given the, the difficult time that the whole country is going through. I know Sandra White has already spoken with the business minister about her concerns, and he told her that he has uh, also spoken with Capita to encourage redeployment opportunities to be fully explored, along with all possible options to mitigate any potential job losses. Scottish Enterprise is also engaging with Capita and offering its support now um, and through the consultation period. If this sadly it does result in job losses, the government will provide support to all affected employees through our initiative for responding to redundancy situations, which I know is well known to members, uh, the Partnership Action for Continuing Employment or PACE initiative. So we will do everything we can to support uh, people in what I know is a very difficult set of circumstances. Thank you, colleagues. And that concludes First Minister's questions. I'm going to suspend business and resume at 2.30 with health uh, portfolio questions. Parliament is